Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to the Boardroom Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Bass. I've been wanting to shed light on and illuminate and have meaningful discussion about the American versus imported surfboard debate. Today's episode is an interview with Firewire CEO Mark Price. It is relative to the last podcast episode in which I interviewed Dennis Jarvis about imported surfboards. It seems now fair and appropriate to hear from an importer of surfboards to shed light on the subject from the opposite point of view. Mark Price is extremely smart, an incredible communicator, polite, and likable. If he didn't read Dale Carnegie's best-selling book, How to Make Friends and Influence People, he certainly doesn't need to. Mark is as smooth as butter. He's also a very good surfer, a keen businessman, a former IPS, ASP, and WSL professional surfer, and now heads up a company that builds boards for Kelly Slater, Daniel Thompson, and the Firewire brand has umbrella shapers Dan Mann and Rob Machado. It is my hope not to take a side in this debate, but to let you, the listener, become informed. But with that being said, I will play devil's advocate with the hope of digging down deep on this issue. For the record, I do not own a Firewire surfboard. I have ridden them. Some I didn't like. One Firewire constructed board I very much liked, the SKX model, which I rode at Kelly Slater's Wave Ranch in Lemoore. I present to you now Mr. Mark Price. Let us begin. Okay. Welcome, Mark Price, to the Boardroom Podcast. Thanks, Scott. Um, Mark, you may or may not know this, but there's a little intro to the show that I've already done where I kind of introduced you. But, um, you know, as you know, this podcast and this interview with you is sort of a, um, well, it is relative to last week's podcast with Dennis Jarvis. So I thought it would make sense to bring in another viewpoint, a viewpoint from um, some of the guys that are importing surfboards. And so again, thanks for being here. Now, with that being said, one of the ideas, as you know, cause you listened to Dennis's, uh, interview, one of those ideas that Dennis posited was leveling of the playing field via a tariff or an import duty. How do you feel about something like that? 
Well, I, th I think it sounds like a solution on its face, but I think you've got to dig a lot deeper as to what the actual implications of that would be. And more importantly, to discuss the domestic board building business model, because I think that is the root cause of a lot of the problems plaguing the industry. It goes well beyond leveling a, a, the playing field by imposing some tariffs on some incoming surfboards. Okay. Well, um, it sounds like you might have some solutions then for the, <laughs> for the American board buildings. Uh, can you elaborate on, on that topic? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not so much that I might have solutions, but I think it's important to, to understand how we got to where we are because you can't fix something if you don't understand it. So I'm going to get a little down in the weeds and wonky-ish here because keep in mind, yeah, I'm a lifelong surfer, but I'm coming at it from the business perspective. You know, yeah. I couldn't shape a board to save my life, yeah. and I have tremendous respect for the talent and perseverance required to get to be a surfboard shaper, certainly at the level of Dennis or anybody else. And by the way, I, I do just want to mention that you know, I don't agree with a lot of what Dennis said, clearly, because that's <laughs> the reason we're having this podcast. Yeah. But I do respect the professional and respectful way that he made his points, and, and I'll certainly you know, endeavor to, to do the same. Anyway, you know, the surfboard business model, you know, when, when you deal with selling products, there's a concept called the price-to-value equation. And that's basically what is the end consumer willing to pay for the value or utility that they get from that product or service. And I think where the surfboard industry sometimes gets confused is they do what I would consider a bottom-up approach to determining this, the price-to-value equation. They look at what it costs to make a surfboard. They look at the time and energy and talent required to get to be an expert shaper or laminator or sander, sprayer, whatever it may be. And they then determine what the price should be. But in reality, it's top-down in the sense that what is a consumer willing to pay for something? That's all that matters. And then it's up to the industry to deliver that product or service and meet that price point. So I think that's an important point to make going in. All right. Um, getting back to the tariff, to the leveling <laughs> of the plane, because that's, yeah. that's where those guys are going to come from. Yeah. And um, what would it? What would fire? How? What would FireWire's response be to an import duty or a tariff? Like if all of a sudden, say in 2020, they, you know, they got their act together and they there was some sort of tariff imposed on stuff coming in from from Thailand. Well, what look, would what would your response be? Yeah, look, I mean, clearly, I'd prefer not to see that happen, just in terms of our own self interest. But if that were to happen. Again, I want to come back to that price-to-value equation because that, to me, drives this entire discussion. So let's say that a tariff of X percent, whatever it may be, is imposed on our product coming in, and it raises our costs of goods, shrinks our margins, and we would then have to adjust to that in any number of different ways. Right. And we would. You know, yeah. Tariffs are imposed on products around the world in various circumstances, and it plays out in, in various ways. But it's not that simple because there's a lot of other component parts that are imported, for one. Are there tariffs now going to be on fins and fin boxes and leash plugs and various other cost of good materials that are imported? Or is it only on the finished surfboard? Well, for yep. the sake of this conversation, let's just say it's only on the finished surfboard. If guys are making fins in Asia and bringing them in here to right. put on American-made surfboards – 
for the sake of this conversation, let's just say, hey, we've got a duty that's placed on imported surfboards. Mm-hmm. It's 20%. Your, what's a price point on a Firewire? Roughly like seven fifty. dollars Retail price retail? point between seven forty and seven seventy five. dollars Retail so in the U.S. So we've got 20%, which is another 150 bucks. Well, it wouldn't be on the retail price. It would be on our landed price, which would be our cost of goods. Okay. So, so what is would, that landed price, if you don't mind me asking? Well, I'm not willing to disclose what our boards are landed, but I can, can tell you it's a lot more than 150 bucks. the way we build our boards. Right. You know, we own right. and operate our own factory. It's a small-scale factory relative to giants like Cobra or Dragonfly in China. Right. And we use far more expensive materials and manufacturing processes to build our boards than a center string of PU board that can land in the U.S. for 150 bucks. So um, regardless of the price point, um, I'm, I'm assuming then that you would just suck up the tariff through your margin? Well, yes. I mean, look, ideally we would like to, to – pass that tariff through the system and raise the price of the boards at retail. I mean, that's what you would like to do, uh, except in most cases you cannot. And this, again, that's why I want to keep coming back to this price-to-value equation. I know it sounds like it might be off on left field, but it actually is very relevant to this discussion. Because the problem with the domestic surfboard industry is, or the surfboard industry as a whole, is if you talk to the board builders, they will say to you that given the time and effort and materials and expertise required to build a surfboard, they weigh too cheap. They should be a lot more expensive at retail. And I agree. But the fact is that the consumer has been trained for decades that a surfboard, certainly a traditionally built center stringer PU surfboard, while the shape is incredible and the performance is incredible, the durability is not there. The board's yellow pretty quickly. The decks dent like crazy after six or eight months. The resale value is minimal. Try trading in a two-year-old PU surfboard at retail or try selling one at a garage sale. So by building these products decade in, decade out, the domestic board building industry has trained the consumer that a surfboard is not really worth that much. And so they've created this box that we're stuck in. Aren't guys going in and buying – $800 $800 Christiansen's or $800 Josh Hall, or for Josh, say Josh Hall longboards like a glider, you're looking at sixteen or $1,800. Well, to the guys who are creating unique product, whether that's innovative for any number of reasons, the materials they may use or the art or, or the cachet that they've developed around their brand, they're actually doing very well. You don't see, you know, the Christiansen's and the Danny Hesses and the coil guys in Florida and, you know, you name it, out on these blogs decrying the, the terrible nature of the market and how they're all getting screwed by the import board builders. So I think that there are uh, board so builders. So who, 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 who would you identify as those that are getting um, how they, you know, to use your term that they're using, screwed? Right. Um, how would you who would you identify as that that board or that board builder or i think it's the, it's the it's the board builders whose only real point of differentiation is whatever their shapes may be and the logo on the surfboards from a material standpoint the the boards are very similar they built out of traditional mis- materials that don't last that yellow that have n- insignificant resale value over time and that middle ground is in bad shape. 
And that's actually true in any product category. You know, basically what's happened is you've either got Apple or you've got Walmart. And right. so you've got premium or you've got really inexpensive stuff. Right. And I think what's happening is the surfboard industry is maturing. And it doesn't mean it's getting better necessarily, but it's evolving and maturing into a marketplace much like any other. And that's creating a ton of dislocations and a ton of pain as the industry goes through that process. And I think that some of the reasons given for that pain are hitting easy targets but don't really get to the nitty-gritty of what, the in, what plagues the industry. So you would identify the guys that are um, pr- getting most hurt as, as, say, the guy that's making a clear PU that's a 6-1 performance trifin that's, that's basically in competition with a mass majority of the line of surfboards that you guys put out. Yeah, and there's too many people building too many surfboards for too few surfers. And so the ones that are succeeding are the ones that are highly differentiated for any number of reasons. So guys who can build very inexpensive surfboards are doing okay. Guys who can build premium surfboards are doing okay. And people who have a point of difference, be it through technology or construction methods, are also doing okay. And Mm. let's look at it this way, Scott. Now, let's just say all the import boards went away tomorrow. And so all this retail space is now, quote-unquote, freed up. If Surfride, which is obviously a pretty large um, surf shop, if they turn around to even Dennis, for example, Spider Surf and said, hey, we want to put 100 boards, 50 in each of our stores. And this, these are the terms of trade that we require. We can't pay you in a hard net 30 because we don't pay any surfboard builder in a hard net 30. Stuff that's well, – let me finish, though. Hang on, Scott. Because I this think is some important. of them do get paid at net 30. Like that's a pretty blanket statement to say that none of the surfboard builders get paid net 30. Because I spoke with, frankly, Surfride today about this, and they told me, and maybe they're lying to me, but no, they told not. me that they do pay surfboards at net 30. None of the board builders at scale that are on their floor. They may you have mean small, like Channel Islands? Yeah, and Lost and – in JS and whoever it may be. Now, they don't pay any of those companies at net 30. At a hard net 30. You mean like all of the boards at net 30? Yes. No way. Okay, so you're saying that they were not being truthful to me no, when no, I spoke No, no, Well, hang on. I'm sure that there are smaller niche board builders who have some floor space in their store that require that net 30 to survive. That surf, surf ride comes up with the cash flow to support that. But when it comes to the large brands that are on their floor, and this is true. I'm not singling out Surfride. This no. is true for any major surf shop that has three to 500 boards Excuse on their floor mm-hmm. from big brands. Right. Those big brands are supporting that inventory with very flexible terms. And in addition, they're trading out product that doesn't sell. And so I would challenge – You mean like Channel Islands, Lost, JS – yeah. Those types of brands. Well, because when you want to introduce your newer models, they don't just keep increasing your floor space. You've got a footprint there that you have to operate within. And they'll say, well, you need to take these slower moving boards out if you want to put that newer board in. Hmm. And so I would suggest that in, say, and I, I hate to keep harping on Dennis because you know, he, he, I'm just using him as a case study. I would argue that Dennis would have a very hard time stomaching those 100 boards sitting at Surfride being strung out on the receivables and also having to trade out stuff that didn't sell. And that's the way the business runs if you want to sell boards through retail. 
I think that the real story here, Scott, is a lot of these guys want to return to the days when surfboards were sold factory direct to the vast majority of surfers so that retail margin went to the manufacturer. Dennis is selling consumer direct because he owns his own stores. Is he suggesting that a surf shop that doesn't own its own surfboard factory and brand should be disadvantaged because that's the way their business is set up? Yeah, I, I think I don't think so. I think that you, if you talk about leveling the playing field, why are you trying to set up a situation where certain retailers have a competitive advantage over another? Well, it's 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 an interesting uh, and it's a very convoluted discussion because I don't feel like you or I have all the facts. Frankly, I, I think that. Um, the consignment model is scaring these guys. Um, and I, I would agree with you. I can't imagine that if you went to, say, Dennis or, say, Christensen or, say, Matt Parker at Album or whoever, because I don't want to single out one guy. Mm. But if you said, hey, we now need 150 boards or let's say 80 boards um, and we can't pay you net 30, we're going to pay you on a consignment basis, the way that Firewire is doing, was doing business with us. And it'll be, I think, is it net seven when they sell a board or something like that? Yeah. And even that gets strung out a little bit. Why do we have to force feed the consignment? Why not? Why can't all of the retailers just go, look, and why can't the surfboard builders go, hey, look, here's the deal. I'm hard net 30 on all my stuff. I have to be. And that's the way it is. Like you're sort of assuming that they would have to go into it with the consignment model. Well, uh, not necessarily full-blown consignment, but they, w they would have to offer extended terms and trade out product they didn't sell. Once you start getting past a certain scale, that's the way the business is done. And what you've got to realize, Scott, is this is how surf shops have been run for decades. And so you've got to go back to, I would say, probably in the early 80s when the bigger apparel brands went into surf shops and said, look, give me this floor space. I'm going to create a section. I'll pay for the racks and the build-out. I'll put whatever product I want in there. I'll trade out what doesn't sell. I'll guarantee you a certain dollar per square foot, and I'll, I'll own that section and make it work for you. And that started in the early 80s. And slowly but surely, all the brands followed suit. And so whatever you want to call it, whether you want to use the C word or extended terms or inventory support. The C word? <laughs> Is it a bad word? Well, according to um, – what went down recently? Oh, yeah, um, Samantha B describing oh, right. Trump's uh, daughter. But, yeah, but, but, but hang on. <laughs> you know, the surf shops, they're under fire left and right. right. They're competing against e-com, Amazon, vertical manufacturer retail. Their cash flow is tight. You know, they need this kind of support. They've come to depend on it in order to survive. So if you want significant floor space in their store, you're going to have to support the inventory. No way around it. What about uh, – so we were speaking hypothetically, and you're saying if there yeah. was no firewire and we had to fill this space, and why can't we just blow up the whole model and just do it like, like I said? Like, guess what? I'm going to put 30 boards in here. They're going to be hard net 30, and – yeah, we we will pull. We might pull one or two models out. You know, if the rest of the line mm -hmm. is selling, we'll trade out a model here or there. Like, who says that we have to do it just because it was done that way twenty five, thirty years ago? Like, why can't we just blow up the consignment model and just 
all start making money right now, <laughs> net 30. Well, I think what, what you what – Maybe you, I'm naive. I, you no, know, I'm you're ma- not naive. And I think you actually answered that point on the podcast with Dennis. You know, when the, the model strategy came into play, which was quite some time ago, where surfboard brands created models, mm-hmm. and they – also started creating brand loyalty among surfers. So, for example, for the most part, you know, if you ride Mayhem Shapes, you tend to like them. You sort of stick with the brand. If you were an Almeric fan, you stuck with CR and so on and so forth. In order for a surf shop to be able to service a reasonable percentage of customers who aspire to purchase a certain set of brands, they've got to have a representation of that brand. You know, when you go into a surf shop, they don't have 25 eyewear companies with five frames in each cabinet from 25 companies. Right. That's the surest way to lose your ass. Yeah. They've got to have a certain critical mass of product representation in order to make a sale. So if you're going to say we want, we want, we want to make everybody healthy in the surf no, industry. No, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. But I, what I'm saying is let's, again, this hypothetical, hypothetical model where Firewire is no longer in the equation. And now let's say Matt Parker from album, the guys from Surfer, I go, Matt, we need 80 boards. And Matt goes, okay, no problem. I'm going to, I'm going to build 80 boards. I'm going to put them in here and they're going to be net 30. Now there may be one or two that we pull out, but we need to blow up this concept that consignments the way it was or net 180 was the way it was. And so that's the way it's going to be. Why can't we say no? Because isn't it true that the surf shops need the surf boards more than the surf boards need the surf shops? You uh, can't be a surf shop without surf boards. Yeah, I think it's a symbiotic relationship. But again, let me come back to the price-to-value equation because the reason stores need this inventory support, if you want to put 50, 80, 100 boards in the store, is because the margin on a surfboard at retail, a premium surfboard, is in the low 20s. Whereas the margin on eyewear, apparel, footwear, accessories is in the 50 to 60% range. So the store can't afford to put that many surfboards in their store at a 22 23% margin and survive and carry the carrying cost of the inventory by paying a hard near 30. Well, maybe they're not a surf shop. No, it's not. Scott, you you, you, you got to ask these guys, you know, and on top of that, they have to compete with these brands selling factory direct at prices below what they're selling at retail. So they're getting screwed both ways. They don't get a well, good margin on, on the, the retail sale they make to their customers because the product category doesn't command it. And they have to compete with lower-priced same products sold by those same board builders direct from their factories. Doesn't it, in fact, it benefit – and again, hypothetically, let's say Matt Parker at Album. Mm-hmm. Doesn't it benefit – Matt Parker to have his boards in in the surf shop, the hot surf shop, because it validates. Kids come in and see it. They go in there to buy wetsuits. They they drool over how bitching the boards are, and so there's value there for Matt Parker, so that he's not going to go sell out of the back of his van at, at the beach. Now there will be, you know, Joe Blow surf surfboard company down the street mm-hmm. that's going to like undercut everybody, and that's going to be there no matter what, right? I mean, we've got to admit that. But speaking about Matt filling a surf shop with 80 or 100 boards at hard net 30, and yes, he will replace a few here and there as needed, which is what they do in the soft goods industry. But for the most part, we're hard net 30, and like, why can't we just do that? Like, I think that would benefit you. I think it would benefit everyone if we just blew up this consignment model. Yeah, it's, but Scott, it's, it's not, it, that's not the problem. The problem is there's no margin in the business model. 
you know, Matt's not going to be able to put that many boards at retail at the low margin he gets selling at wholesale, the current wholesale prices to those retailers because his cost of goods building domestically is so high. And on the flip side, the retailer, without the inventory support, can't support the low margin sale when they sell it to the consumer. Sorry, to come back to your Elgin how, thing. How is Lost and Channel Islands, if they're getting 28% or 22% margin, how are they doing it then? By massive scale. Well, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying Matt's, right. Matt replaces one of those guys, or Matt replaces you, or Matt replaces... Yeah. Like, I don't understand how Scott, come everyone at, just doesn't stop and go, no, because at no that, more. Because at that scale, the surf shop can't pay net 30 for that amount of product that's retailing for such a low margin. And then I'm saying, and maybe, I'm na- maybe I'm naive, but then you're not a surf shop. Like, you don't no. sell surfboards anymore. Guess what? No, but Scott, that comes back to the, the price-to-value equation where all the domestic board builders, not all, but, you know, the ones that have worked manufactured at scale – with this product that was not durable, that yellowed, that had no resale value. But we're talking about Matt Parker, though. Like, those boards are a little bit more high-end. This isn't like a clear Trifin, poly, you know, slam-bam, thank-you-ma'am board. Yeah, but you can't put 100 album surfboards in their current form in Surfride and have them sell because the vast majority of surfers want a white board and they want a, a, a simpler design that, that's more accessible and understandable. And that that's actually a great point, right? So that's where albums are boutique board builder. No, for really sure, good one. for sure. You know, for I sure. think I think we're, so where the, we're getting so down. is the problem. Then the consu- what the consumer wants is that cheap, for lack of a better phrase, that sort of throwaway board for five hundred and fifty, six hundred and fifty no, bucks. No, they're willing to pay seven fifty to. to so you just said that they couldn't do that. Like I was saying, Matt's a good example. Let's say Matt goes, "Yeah, you're right. I need to make six um, two performance trifins for all the guys because that's what the market's asking for." And so he makes killer album six two performance trifins, and they're nice. And right. So why can't he just go? I'm hard net thirty. Everyone should be hard net thirty. Yeah, but Scott, what 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 you're you're missing is that. At at seven fifty to seven seventy five retail, because he's not going to get eight nine hundred you know nine hundred thousand dollars for those boards. Mm-hmm. He's selling them through retail, so right away he's lost the retail margin, right? And his manufacturing margin is not that good either, because right. the business model is boxed in with a price to value equation you can't get out of. Right. When you go over eight hundred dollars for a a a, 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 re, a basic board sold at retail, the market drops off precipitously. Right. So you can't get the economies of scale. You don't have the margins to support this business model that you're trying to describe. What right. needs to happen is we need to build better surfboards over time so that the consumer has a higher price-to-value equation in their mind. So they're willing to pay $1,000 so that the manufacturer can sell it for 700 and make a good margin, and the retailer makes a good margin. You have to shift the whole business model. and. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. But that's what needs to happen if the domestic board building industry wants to survive and be healthy. It's not about slapping ta- import tariffs on Firewise product and thinking that that's going to solve the margin structure of this industry. Well, maybe sense. I am naive. Maybe I'm <laughs> ignorant. I, maybe I don't. Maybe I'm putting a round peg into a square hole and it's not working. But. Um, let me talk to you about the consignment model. Let's say yeah. that I'm, uh, let's say that I open a new surf shop. I've got a killer space in downtown on a beach somewhere in the location on you know coastal. Yeah. I've got a big footprint, and 
I want fire wires or yeah, I want fire wires in my shop. And, and one of your guys comes out and we say hi and we meet and what is the, what is the, um, model look like? Like how, how would you approach me as the sales guy, as the owner, as the buyer for the shop? Well, the first thing is we'd make sure that we didn't already have credible distribution in that area. We only have 120 accounts in the whole U.S. We're extremely selective as to where we place our boards, which, by the way, leaves another 600 surf shops that we don't even sell in terms of other brands having an avenue to retail where they don't even compete against us. So the first point is we'd make sure that you, know, you weren't encroaching on any existing distribution, and, and we've turned down a ton of business in order to do that because we're about premium pricing and looking at the really long term. So let's say that that box gets checked. The next box would be what other brands are you going to carry in your store because we want to sit alongside the other premium brands so we can compete in the premium space on a par with the competitors that, that offer similar products at similar price points. Check that box. Then we would look at the overall carrying capacity of your store. Remember, we, we run three brands, Tomo, Firewire, and Slater Designs, and we would want to make sure that we had a reasonable representation to where our brand, when you walked in the store, was showcased in a manner that was commensurate with the other premium brands in there. So if you said, hey, listen, I'm going to carry 100 lost and I want 15 Firewires, we'd say, you know, I'm sorry, that's just not the way we want our brand represented. At the same time, we wouldn't want to have 100 Firewires in there and, and – 10 to 15 lost in CRs because that's just not right. Consumers don't want to shop that way. You know, so let's say choice. I meet all the requirements. So right. what do you, do you go Scott where we, I see you have 60 CIs. I see you have 85 lost and we want to put 85 fire wires in here. They're going to be delivered, you know, in three weeks. Um, what are my terms? Yeah. So basically the boards go in, Mm-hmm. Uh, we create a virtual warehouse in our ERP system to where on any given day we know exactly what's in your store. Mm-hmm. Every one of our boards has its original serial number on it so we can track the individual boards. Yeah. And just by the way, we've had a Made in Thailand sticker laminated under the glass on our boards for over 10 years. Yes. Just for the record because that's another Good bit point. of disinformation that gets thrown out there about import brands in general, and yeah. we don't play that game. We're very yeah. transparent, and it's not where the traction pad covers it up once you put a traction on the board. It's on the rail. But right. It's always visible. I digress. No, that's okay. That's a good point. Yeah. That's a good point. Because um, I think of all the imported surfboards, um, it's quite obvious to me that you've done a great job of, of rising above the fray and being transparent. Yeah, and that's we, really we what are, this conversation's are. about. And I want to frankly. circle back at some point and talk about why we went offshore because we didn't start out offshore. Okay, but let's but we'll stay on this. That. Yeah, so, so anyway. I, I'm ready to go. I want yep. 80 firewires. I want a good, nice range of everything you've got. Right. Do you just do I just sell them? Do do I get? Um, when do I pay you? Like well, I get them for free forever, and when like obviously when they sell, you're ready to go. Net yeah, seven so, is actually I think what. Yeah, so we'll come in every two weeks and take a physical inventory. We'll run off your point-of-sale system as well, but the physical inventory trumps that. So if a board's not there, you get invoiced for it, and you pay (laughs) net seven. Sure. Surfers are the worst. Surf shop guys. Hiring for a small business is critical. It's imperative that you find a highly qualified professional to treat and grow your business with the same care and detail that you do. LinkedIn Jobs will be your next big unlock. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team fast and for free. 
Everybody is already on LinkedIn with their resume and their references. So the fact that LinkedIn built a hiring platform to connect the dots between everything is simple genius. It's way more sophisticated than a job board. It's a vast network of more than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set, desire, ambition, all in an effort to help us advance our position. And it's easy to use and intuitive. So effective that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Fast hiring solutions means achieving your goals in record time with rapid growth in 2024. LinkedIn Jobs will even help you write the job descriptions and give you tools and prompts to help you interview your candidate like a pro. LinkedIn.com slash surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. And you can let the world's largest social network of business professionals work to connect you with the ideal candidate to help you grow your business. That is LinkedIn.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And look, the the beauty of it is we manage our footprint. Mm-hmm. Um, it enables us to innovate. This is one of the untold stories about it, and, I, and I'd like to digress for a moment because you're really good at digressing from one. Yeah, but I'm, these are valid. Points, no, they are. They're good. Know? They're good things. But just real quick, finish the okay, thing. What do I do? What, what, is it you, net you seven? You pay us for the boards that sell okay. on a net seven basis. Okay. Yeah. And if stuff doesn't sell? Well, the, the other beauty of it is we know when we delivered each surfboard to you because it has an individual serial number. So we'll actually come to you and say, hey, listen, we've got a new model dropping. These are slower sellers. Let's mark them down or we'll trade them out or whatever. So we're very proactive in making sure that in our footprint we have the fastest turning product possible. And keep in mind, Scott, the consignment model only works if stuff sells. Yeah, the retailer doesn't have to pay for it, but he makes no money on it if it doesn't sell, and neither do we. And that's an important distinction. It's not just sitting there taking up space. The product is turning and is obviously profitable for the retailer and for us. I talked to a couple of surf shops and because um, I wanted to do a little bit of research uh, before, we talk, before we spoke. And yeah. interestingly, they told me, they go, the, the two that I talked to, Firewire is the only brand that's consignment. The Channel Islands that are in there are whatever they are, net 30, but maybe not hard, according <laughs> to you. I can see you squirming. No, I was told they're net squirming. I heard they were net 30. Um, the, the loss, the same deal. Right. So I think it's kind of important to note that, and this guy made a point of saying, hey, I do it like that on purpose. Like, I want the American board manufacturer in my store. It's important to me right. to have Lost, to have Channel Islands, to have Josh Hall, to, to have Christensen, to have, even though they don't do albums because Matt has his own store sure. in San Clemente, but you get the point. Um, they're they're um, savvy and they're sensitive to making sure that sort of all of their boxes are checked regarding right. the stock and, and the inventory that they have. And I think that, that 
that speaks to a pretty healthy surfboard manufacturing industry in, in whole, be it from overseas or here in America. Look, there's a huge difference between what the invoice says, which could be net 15, net 30, and when you actually get paid. And let me put it this way. We can play with words, but in reality, you know, and I had this conversation with a, someone who was on the other side of this issue. And I said, okay, so you carry Volcom, right? And the guy goes, yeah, and I'm not singling, singling out Volcom either. And I said, okay, so it's April. And the rep calls up and goes, hey, you know, you've got your Volcom section, and we want to deliver summer. Can we ship it? And you go, well, you know what? There's not much room on the rack because this stuff didn't sell. What, what do you do? And the guy didn't even hesitate. I sent it back. So, Well, I actually, I talked to a guy. Here. I talked to a guy we're about playing this. With words here, I talked sorry. to a guy about this. And, and no, for, no, let me just continue for a second. Once, sometimes twice a year, CI has a massive parking lot sale yeah. up in there. Yeah. What, is, what are those boards? Where did they come from? And what impact do you think that sale has on everybody's regular business sales in that territory for six months thereafter, after they've dumped a couple hundred boards at dirt cheap prices direct to the consumer? Well, I'm assuming, I don't know exactly, but let's you and I assume that some of those boards are team boards. Some of those boards are boards they got off the rack that didn't sell in these right, retailers. They took them back. And, and so I, and what do you guys do with yours? We mark them down. How do you, our, we mark them down through our retailers, and because our boards don't yellow at retail, they actually have a much longer shelf life. So we don't have. We haven't haven't had a parking lot sale. We haven't had to. Right. So but, there's no like back channel where you're dumping product, for lack of a better phrase. No, but listen, I'm not criticizing CR for doing that. It's, it sounded like, like you were. <laughs> no, no. This is the important point. When you're operating at scale. Those are the business realities. Absolutely. I, I, and that's I the agree. point. Yeah. CI is smart to do what they do. And if I was them, I'd do the exact same thing. So the invoice says net 30. But if it doesn't sell, we'll take it back. What's the difference? Well, okay. So I asked some guys about that soft goods um, example. And they basically said, look, if there's onesies, twosies, like if it's a size thing, like the, the, the product actually sold, but there's a double extra at large over here, you know, um, they'll take it back. If there's a big chunk of stuff that didn't sell, like a whole line that was just a bad idea, like a bad fashion statement or something, I was told that they would, and we're just using Volcom as an example. Yeah. This is certainly... The, that Volcom would then um, go, yeah, it, it was a mistake. What we'll do is we'll credit your win your spring line that's on the books, the pre-book, with that winter line. So that they won't take back onesies, twosies. They will mark it down so that the margin stays the same for the surf for the surf shop, the retailer. Yeah. Okay. So that's their way of offering inventory support. Sure. The surf shop. Sure. At the end of the day, however you want to slice it, it comes down to inventory support. What right. I can tell you, and I say this with confidence after yeah. 35 years in the industry, if you go to a surf shop and you say, here's my product, it's a hard net 30, it has to be paid in 30 days, and we don't take anything back, good luck getting placement in that store. Yeah. It's really that simple. Yeah. So you can get creative on, on how you structure it. Right. But at the end of the day, anybody who wants to have significant floor space at retail needs to offer significant inventory support in whatever form you feel comfortable doing that. Right. But this hard- That's just 30, smart business. 
it's not even smart business. It's just, it's just that's, reality. That's yeah. the hurdle you have to clear right. to get in the door. But it is smart in that you wouldn't even have that opportunity if you didn't go down that path. True, but the, doesn't the, the, the consignment model help to even soften this up even more? Though, like, it seems like we should be striving to get hard net thirty. I agree, we're never going to get hard net thirty. We'd love it. You know, I know. Well, then doesn't it seem like the consignment model just softens it up even more? So it makes it impossible to ever. We'll never get to hard net 30 if there's somebody doing a consignment well, model. Let, let's go back to a couple points. First of all, we're not on consignment in Europe and in Australia. And if you go into our search. But shops, the American we, board builders are. You, but hang on. You've got a target because of the I American board. I get that. Board. But yeah. we have as big a footprint in those stores as we have in the U.S. So but Those are all net 30. Like. Yeah, but they're not COD? paid. They're not paid. No, not no. COD. They net thirties, but they're not paid in thirty days. Right. But my point is, is that the brand is strong in those markets, and consignment didn't do it because a lot of times people point to consignment in the USA. Well, that's why you're successful. No, I agree. The product's insane. It's killer. Okay. I, that's so, yeah. I'm not doubting that. I'm just saying yeah. here does the consignment model. It just, I mean, it, it just doesn't. It, like I say, soften up the market so that we'll never get to even a close to a net forty hard net forty five or something. You know, like. I think that Scott, those days are over because the business model has changed so dramatically. The way in which surf shops have to compete right now against the omni-channel business model, they need that support to survive. They just do. Yeah. So All right. I think the, the, the horse is bolting the barn. Right. But one other point, you know, how did consignment come about? We didn't launch with consignment in 2006. In 2008, the financial crisis hit, and – our boards were selling through. Retailers were understandably concerned and circling the wagons. We couldn't get reorders. And we're like, what are we going to do? So we went to them and said, look, we'll finance the inventory if you keep supporting the brand. And they did. And the product sold. And our floor sprays grew. Was that when the horse left the barn? It was always going to – no, the barn, it, it had left already in terms of the industry. The surfboard market was just catching up to every other product category being sold at surf shops, which was already on soft terms. Right. It just was. Yeah. But we thought that after the financial crisis, we'd reel it back in. But it ended up being a better way to do business for us. And I'll give you another example. Let's take Tomo. Now, I'm not going to sit here and suggest that Tomo would never have made it without Firewife because he's incredibly talented and his boards just flat out work. But do you think any of those surf shops would have carried those extreme-looking vanguard shapes on a hard net 30 without demo boards? There's no chance. So I would argue that the consignment model actually frees up innovation because it gives the manufacturer the freedom to put innovative stuff that we want to take a risk on into the market because it won't happen at the retailer side. Fair enough. I want to shift gears a little bit, please, Mark. Um, some have suggested that the boards that Kelly Slater rides in competition, the boards that Taj was riding – the boards that Michelle Perez is riding, the boards that Sally Fitzgibbons is riding, the boards that Dusty Payne was riding, that these boards aren't the same boards that are sold at retail, that these boards weren't made from the same build process. Can you speak to that? Yeah, so let, I think we have to take the athletes individually. So the let's take Kelly, for example, because that's the most recent one. Kelly left CI after 35 years plus of riding predominantly PU center stringer surfboards. He decided to invest in Firewire because he liked what we were doing and for any number of reasons. So we created a runway for him, a transition period where we mocked up his boards to all look the same. So he couldn't tell. And this was his, hey, I don't want to know what they're made of because I want to have a, you know, a, a, a 
not be prejudiced objective, when I panel yeah. out. Yeah, objective assessment as to what's what. So there were situations during that transition period where Kelly was writing some center stringer boards that looked like ours. And it was a deliberate strategy to get him comfortable with our technology, which was kind of funny because I went on so many blogs and I'd see guys going, yeah, Kelly Surfing's going to shit now that he's on Firewire technology. Meanwhile, he's riding a center stringer PU. Right, you're damned if you do, you're damned if yeah, you don't. Yeah, anyways. Um, once Kelly came through that transition period, all his boards now are Firewire technology. Michelle's boards have always been Firewire technology, as have Taj's. Now, the difference is that sometimes we take our LFT construction, which uh, has an aerospace composite center stringer and EPS foam, and we remove the deck skin for the team guys because they just prefer that build a little bit. Obviously, the board doesn't have to be as durable for them because we'll replace it. And that's the only build. But this notion that Michelle is riding PU surfboards disguised as epoxy, it's just wishful thinking. Similarly with Sally Fitzgibbons. You know, she won events on firewire boards built in our, our technology and our construction. And there are, there's been many examples where guys have won events on stock boards, literally. Yeah. I mean, like the exact build. Yeah. So, you know, I, th- I think there's so much disinformation around our brand because – because we, you have a target, and everyone we have a target. Just, a We've lot been of... successful, and and ah, you know, we can deal with it. So, just to be clear, these these surfers that we mentioned are now riding boards that I would get at Surfrider Hansons or any other outlets around the world. If they're riding FST or helium. It's the exact build. If they're riding LFT, in some cases, they don't have deck skins. In other cases, they do. Okay. But they are certainly EcoBoard certified and consistent with the materials that we use. One of the things that that Dennis and I spoke about was this idea that that surf culture is sort of born out of the surfboard builder. When we think back um, to, you know, Dale Velzi and Greg Knoll and Hap Jacobs, Mm -hmm. and we even jump forward to, say, Al Chapman and Brewer or to Lopez and Roy Russell with Lightning Bolt. And we can even move forward now to, say, guys like Ryan Birch or um, Jeff McCallum or Christensen. I mean, there's just a million guys that that are certainly characters, that are certainly Mm -hmm. great surfers. Um, you know, when we even think historically about, say, Nat Young, we know that, oh, Magic Sam was the board that he rode at the world titles in San Diego. Um, there's There's been moments throughout our history where the surfboard is an integral part of it, our legacy and our culture. And do you think in some way that we're going to lose that, that we are losing that? Do you think that the cultural equation of an imported surfboard um, is has a negative effect? Do you think it has a negative impact on, on surf culture? And do you believe that what I said, do you believe <laughs> that these characters and these boards and these moments are, do you believe that a, a handcrafted surfboard is an integral part of who we are, where we came from, all of these things? That's a tough one. Yeah. You know, because I don't think it's an either or the, I would certainly the number of, handcrafted surfboards and these individuals that build them is diminishing. 
But I would argue that has a lot to do with the fact that it's a profession that is incredibly difficult to learn. It's a pretty toxic environment to work in, certainly in PUPE, and you can't make a real good living out of it. So I think the issue is more that there's not a whole crop of young people coming up into the industry to help perpetuate that part of it. And that has more to do with those structural issues I mentioned than the fact that boards are now all being built in Asia. You know, let me ask you this, you know. You're not allowed to ask questions. (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead. You're smarter than I am. I'm going to lose this deal. No, no, that's not true, you know. What's your question? I think these same conversations have taken place with the advent of computer design. Like take graphic artists, for example. You know, there's a whole bunch of artists who can literally draw stuff from scratch on a piece of paper. They probably feel that some kid coming out of art school who only knows how to work Photoshop and Illustrator doesn't have a soul or has a diminished design soul versus that person. You know, we went through this whole debate when shaping machines arrived. And there's going to be sanding machines in the near future as well. And is that going to spur the whole notion that your board was sanded by a machine so it has less soul than if it was sanded by a person? I don't know the answer, to be honest. But what I'd like to think is the the soul of the surfboard for me comes from the integrity of its design and who was behind the creation of it. So if we can get to the point where some... Joe Blow's been surfing six months, can just jump on and design a board and 3D print it and pedal out on it. That's one thing. But if a guy like Daniel Thompson, who has spent decades from the age of 14 years old honing his craft and creating design innovations, is now able to offer that to the global surfing population through a platform like Firewire, how's that a bad thing? I don't think it's a bad thing. I agree with you. I guess my concern is, and I don't even know if it's a concern, but sort of the the pinpoint of this culture argument is first of all, it assumes that Asian imports are going to take over the, the world. And I don't believe that I, I stated that. that. I think that's just I a fallacy. I, I can ride a firewire, fall in love with it, gain yeah. 20 pounds and go, Oh shit, I need a new board. Mm. And I can go to Christensen or whoever and go, dude, make me something, you know, mm. like, I just don't think it's going to leave. Um, I think there might be, um, I think that maybe the Asian the imported board, wherever it comes from, Mexico, Asia, um, it certainly could eliminate some of the market share. Um, but it's also, you've, you've also mentioned some of the benefits that it's created. Like it's, it's done well for Daniel Thompson. It's doing good. We believe for the environment and we'll get on that in a second. Yeah. But I guess my concern is, is this whole relationship that I have with like the hill on Westlake where I go up there and as a kid, I ordered my first surfboard from there, you know, Jack Jensen, blah, blah, blah. And there's all these, there's the Hout factory in Santa Cruz and there's all these, you know, even the, the ghetto in San Clemente, there's all these kind of neat little Mm. dirty kind of raw kind of back alley kind of salty, like, is that all just a fallacy that, that some of my emotions are tied to and it's not no. really a part of the culture? Or, I mean, Pat Curran's up there building boards on Westlake. You know, like there's just all of this stuff that as a as a kid, I'm just sort of – and as a surfer, I'm sort of just drawn to the fact that right up there on the hills where they make all the boards. Yeah. And I, I, I actually am tied to that. Like my heartstrings are pulled by that. Look, I, th- I think if that disappeared, we would have lost something. There's no question. But I think the, 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 the answer is a little more nuanced in the sense that that side of the surfboard industry 
is diminishing and taking on a smaller role in the global scope of the industry. But that's inevitable in, in the sense that that's happened in every other sporting good category or product category on the planet. Take watchmakers or whoever. You know, the, the artisanal watchmaker is probably a, a sm- represents There's a much one. There's one of them. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so long as there's people like that building those types of boards, then I think the culture will be strong. And the point is this, unfortunately, and it is unfortunate because some highly skilled, talented people are, una- are going to be una- unable to make a living in the industry as it evolves. But the people who are able to create a point of difference, the true artisanal board builders will survive. They will play an important role. And I think also let's not overly romanticize what it means to build a surfboard. It's a pretty pain-in-the-ass thing to have to do. And so I think that that's probably one of the bigger reasons why the culture is is diminishing because, as I said earlier, there aren't a whole crop of new people who want to go down that road. And the other last thing I'll say on this particular point is, to me, at the end of the day, the culture is far more defined by riding the waves than what you're riding and where it came from. I would agree with that. And I would also, but I do, I kind of disagree that there aren't a bunch of, there isn't a bunch of new blood coming into the handcrafted American built surfboard. I think that there are a lot of 19 and 20 year old kids that are like, this is what I want to do for my life. And maybe they're naive. Maybe they don't Mm -hmm. see the big picture yet. I certainly didn't when I was 19, Mm -hmm. but what a great way to make a living. I can eke out a couple hundred bucks of surfboard. I can um, do what I'm love. I can, you know, use my hands and be a craftsman and do all this stuff. I think where the fall off happens and where frankly, firewire catches a bunch of, um, you know, grief on Mm. Instagram or other social media forms (laughs) is the 35 year old guy. That's like, uh Oh, I no longer really kind of don't have that same passion play that Mm. I had. I don't even surf anymore, maybe once in a while, but I'm just trying to feed the kids, get the mortgage paid, and I'm in this industry that I feel like is con- contracting and, and and I'm frustrated. And so I'm going to let it all out on these guys over here. Because yeah. I do think that there's actually, just based on my shows, there's quite a few young kids that are into it. And I'm well, stoked know, that, that they are. I completely agree. It's just not at the scale and representing a percentage of the surfboard industry that it used to. It's not that it's going away. It's just falling in line with its sustainable size within the scope of the overall industry based on the changes that are, that, that are taking place. That's, that's my take on it. All right. Um, let's talk real quick and then we'll try to wrap this up so that we don't, we can go as long as you want. Well, we don't want to bore the crap. <laughs> yeah, out of true. Um, hey, Joe Rogan does three hour podcast. Well, he's, I mean, I am, a far cry from Joe Rogan. I'm sitting here in the dark in your office trying to read my notes. How does it compare um, your factory? How does it compare to, say, Waterman's Guild or Pure Glass or the Moonlight Factory um, when we talk about EPA restrictions? Because those guys are all, you know, and you've heard it just yep, like yep. we all have. Oh, they don't have to deal with the EPA, the regulations, the taxes, the 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 stuff, the regulations that I have to deal with in Thailand, they simply don't have those. Yeah, well, I can't speak to the difference between governmental regulations between, say, a U.S.-based factory and the Thailand factory. What I can speak to is the self-imposed regulations that we place on ourselves 
because we are serious about sustainability. And I can throw out some statistics just to give you an idea of, of how serious we are. So, for Make example, them short because <laughs> statistics bore us. Yeah, but no, well, they're not bunches of numbers and stuff. But so, for example, you know, we have reduced our waste by over 95% over the last two years from 0.4 cubic meters per board to 0.02. How do you measure this? Because people are going to go, oh, he's just throwing numbers at us. You know, the naysayers are going to go, says who? Well, you can – we do, so one of the, the – we're 100% eco-board certified through Sustainable Surf. And in order to qualify for that certification on 100% of your production, you have to be audited by them. So Michael Stewart goes out to our factory once a year, goes through all the books and records, and believe me, we keep detailed records over there at the scale we operate, walks the floor, sees what's going on, and does a basic report on how we're operating and the waste streams that are being generated and how they're being treated. So like LEED certification in architecture, it's something that is audited, and so we can point towards that and say these numbers are real because they are a third What is party. their motivation to do that? What is their motivation? Do they get paid? I mean, like, who are they to be the ones that get to raise the flag and go, it's cool, they're good? Well, I think they've done the hard yards. And I'm know? not doubting it, but others yeah. are going to go, well, who the hell are they? I mean, well, their, their personal credentials in terms of what they studied. They're, they're, are, they're solid. Are, I yeah, agree. Kevin solid. Wilden and Michael Stewart, they're good friends of mine. Okay. I get it. But That's I need to speak point. to the naysayer here. Second point is they slaved for years. Do you pay them? We pay them per board built, but to put the so it's in their interest to give you the the eco green light. Yeah, but I think that's that's kind of a weird thing. You got to admit that's a little muddled. It it is, but at the same time, I think it's if you look long term and what they're trying to accomplish. You know, if someone were to poke holes in what they're doing, they'd be done overnight. Yeah. So I just can't see what their incentive would be, given their commitment to this and how many years they've toiled for nothing in the long term future that they see for sustainable surf but the more that, that the more that they green the, the more that they green light the more money they make look that's a fair point i'm just saying that's a fair point yeah anyway. that needs to change yeah. on their end fair enough does monday at the office feel like a storm not with microsoft copilot that feeling when copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly it's sunny again when copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act that sun's shining on a beach and when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Um, but l let me keep going, you yeah, know, please because do. you talk about regulations and yeah. stuff. We're going to be fair trade certified by how does, early 2019. How does that take place? What is that? Now, who, who does, you want who to talk about a certification. I'm sure know. that's a nightmare, but who, who is it? Is it the, is it the U.S. It's, Commerce Department? No, it's a global organization global, called okay. Fair Trade. And if okay. you look at Patagonia's marketing campaign that they put in place, all of their factories are Fair Trade certified. Okay, so globally, this is a respected. Um, this is from the Apple factory at Foxconn, which I doubt is Fair Trade certified. But the, this, you know, this, this. Um, company goes globally into factories of all sizes. Is this like a global nonprofit or is it a for-profit thing that comes in and audits all these different companies to get this fair trade certification? Yeah, like who, I'm not familiar. I know I could do the research. I should have yeah. done the research on this. But. Quite honestly, Scott, I'm not familiar if they're for-profit or non-profit, right. but the standards are rigorous. Sure. It's an accepted standard that's recognized globally around the recognized, world. Globally recognized, right. Okay, these people are operating in, a, in an integral way. And Patagonia uses them, which says exactly. a lot. And look, 
the naysayers are going to poke holes in everything I say, so I'll right. just say it anyway. Right. Fair trade certification is a big deal, right. and it, it, it revolves around labor practices. You know, we run the furthest thing from a sweatshop that you can imagine. Yeah. On top of that, you know, as I mentioned, we've got these waste stream reductions that we, that we work on. We even retrofitted our air conditioners with a, with a system that reduces the energy consumption by 40%. We recycle, we're introducing re-res by the end of this year across all of our product, which means we can recycle stir sticks, brushes, um, buckets. Is that through Kenora? Yeah, exactly. And I can go on and on. What about the pavers? Somebody goes, ask them about the pavers. (laughs) So I'm just going to do it for this person because I think it's kind of a silly thing. But he wanted to know, he wanted to know, is it more environmentally friendly to just not make the pavers like when no. you make the pavers don't you have to burn some resins that create some vocs or yeah so what the so basically what the, the this den- is going to bore our listeners Maybe so make not, it yeah. I'll go fast. so there's a machine called a densifier which right. reduces the volume of the eps dust from shaping the boards by a hundred fold hundred times okay so if you fill this room with eps dust you'd probably end up with a two-foot square cube of material, which is the same density as concrete. Right. Now, that room full of dust would have gone into a landfill. Right. Or into the air. Whatever. We're keeping all of that EPS dust out of the ground. Okay. We're making a product that you can use, and if you go up to Surf Ranch, there's a whole area that's been paved. You can use it for driveways. We've gone to local schools in Thailand. So it is in the ground. And retrofit, (laughs) yeah, on the ground. We've gone to local schools in Thailand and retrofitted their playgrounds. It's a big deal. What about these naysayers, these these people on Instagram, the Peter Schroffs of the world that Who? that no, I'm have, just kidding. <laughs> that have it must be tough because there've been some real low blows. Um some there's been some memes on Instagram, there's been some graphical stuff that my little ego couldn't handle it. It must be difficult. What do you say to these people? How do you love these people? Can you love them? Well, I actually found Shroff at the boardroom show and chased him down. Yeah, I heard about He didn't come by our booth because I wanted to talk to him. And for those who don't know, Peter and I worked together in the 80s for three or four years. Gotcha. Very successfully and had a great time. I mean, he's an incredibly creative guy. Yes, that's obvious, right? Right. Yeah. Um, look, I'll be honest. I mean, when I see that stuff, it it hurts. Yeah. You know, I'm a human being. Sure. Um, but what bothers me much more than that is the lies and disinformation. Right. We can take a punch all day long building boards in Asia. That's that's where we make our boards. We don't hide that fact, as I mentioned earlier. And we can take all those slings and arrows. But there's so much disinformation. So, for example... You know, when they're out there saying that we need 50 to 70% import duties into the U.S. like they have into Europe and Australia, there's no import duties from the U.S. into Australia. There's a fair trade agreement. Right. There's a 10% tax that the importer has to pay. But when that person resells that board, they get a draw- drawback. So it zeroes out. Okay. So it's zero. Right. Is that you in know, Europe or in Australia? That's in, in Australia. Yeah. You know, when Dennis says his boards are $1,200 in Australia versus eight fifty here, there's a 25% exchange rate differential. Right. Plus, the prices in Australia all include 10% sales tax, whereas the prices in the U.S. are excluding sales tax. So, you know, it, 
I, it, it, that's what bugs me. It's the disinformation, you know. Yeah. And when Peter Schroff makes some of his statements that are just uh, like, you know, he's getting bodyguards because he's being threatened by us, you know. Give me a break, man. So, and and part of the problem, right, is that you've you've got a really high mark that you've that you've created for your business for your company, and there's all these other Asian surfboards that are coming in that are literally slam bam thank you ma'am from China or from wherever, and you Firewire gets lumped in with all of these companies. I love that you've brought up this point. Because I actually wanted to mention this and it slipped my mind. Yeah. You're right. But what's interesting is on the flip side, and I'm not going to mention names, but I, I had a meeting with, a, with one, of the, one of the best board glass shops in California. Yeah. And they said that their biggest problem are the quasi-legal glass shops who don't pay their workers' comp properly and don't run their business properly. Oh, you mean here in California? Yeah. yeah. And then go and undercut their prices to other board builders because they have a lower overhead structure because they're not running their businesses legally on the up and up. Right. And I think, you know... I, That's I w- pretty negligible though, right? I mean, how many of those are there, do you think? I don't know, but that was... It's, they, it's their concern comment, though, you know? right. and, yeah. and, I, and, you know, here's the point too. You know, if the domestic board builders want to push for these import duties and let's just say that they're successful and that's fine you know we'll, we'll pay them and we'll adjust but they better have their house in order you know they better be managing their cash sales perfectly and paying sales tax and running their business on the up and up workers comp all this stuff because i think one of the the unfortunate dark secrets of the domestic board building industry and this does not apply to everybody i don't want to paint with a broad brush but because it's such a low-margin, tough business, these companies cut corners. And I'm not even criticizing them for that. They almost have to because everyone is boxed into this low-margin business model. You can't break out of it. And it's just – it's really a tough deal for everybody. Slapping import duties on the import boards is not going to change that. It's the price-to-value equation that has to change. How do you think that um, – obviously, you speak with Kelly occasionally. How does Kelly handle um, some of the negative talk that – because I know I see on Instagram, he gets involved. I mean, he's not afraid yeah. to chime right in. And I wonder, does do you sometimes cringe and go, you know what, Kelly, it would be best if you just kind of st- st- you know, rose above this? Or and, and also, what kind of conversations do you have with him about some of these um, naysayers that are slinging arrows? Yeah, look – I think his position is similar to mine in the sense that it hurts. You know? yeah. But at the same time, sometimes you have to engage. I think this issue that you just never engage, um, that I don't believe in that. I think yeah. When there's just some real blatant untruths or misinformation, it's good to push back. And I don't push back to try and change the mind of the hater. I'm pushing back for the guy reading the thread who's neutral and never gets to hear our point of view. Yeah. Um, and I think Kelly likes to operate in a similar vein. He doesn't pick every single fight that comes his way. Um, he's a much bigger target than me, so <laughs> I think he gives me some cover. Is there any truth that you believe that the earth is flat? Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, let's end with this, or maybe not. Maybe we'll keep going. But yeah. what does the perfect surfboard market look like to Mark Price? In other words, in a perfect world, do we still have the consignment model and there's 80 fire wires, there's 80 CIs, there's 80 losts? 
and there's a couple of artisan boards and, and, and in your business mind, that's perfect. No, I think, I think, or is it all firewire? Like, is it, is the truth, if the truth be told, would you rather just firewire own the market completely? There was nothing but firewire. You know, Scott, I think one of the things we've done is we've been incredibly disciplined in how we built our business. Our distribution is the most selective of all the major brands out there. We maintain premium price points. We haven't launched entry-level boards. We haven't slapped our name on soft-top import boards. We've done a lot of things to maintain the integrity of this company, and we, we haven't put our name on, a, on you know, every single product category out there just because we have a brand. We're very, very disciplined in the way we go to market because we actually believe that too, too much stuff is made, too much stuff is thrown away, and as a whole, the world is fucked if we don't start cleaning up our act in terms of how we make stuff, how we consume, and how we dispose of it in terms of the big picture. And we walk the walk and talk the talk in the way this business is run, whereas a lot of our competitors you know, put their name on a whole host of products to make more money. We never went offshore to make more money. We went offshore to stay in business. We set out with factories and burly heads in San Diego. But because of that price-to-value occasion and that shitty margin business model, you can't build a sandwich construction, highly technical surfboard domestically and sell it at scale. You can do it in little regional niches and get away with it with different overhead structures. CR proved that with the Flex Bar, 850 bucks retail with a guarantee, and it still didn't sell. Because the consumer, when it gets to over 800 bucks, they just have a mental block based on decades of being trained that that's all the surfboard is worth. Coming back to answer your question more specifically, you know, I, I think that what I would like to see is a better business model where there's healthy margins for everybody so that you then have the flexibility as to how, how and where you want to make your boards. We would much rather have a shorter time to market, not have the long lead times we have out of Asia, if we could do it profitably. So I think the key to the perfect surfboard market is more expensive surfboards, better margins for the retailers and the manufacturers, and I think that'll go a long way towards fixing what ails the industry. But you don't think that's going to happen? I mean, you said earlier that you just doubt that it'll be a long time coming that we get, you know, a $1,200 6-1 Trifin. Yeah, I think it's a long time coming, but I would almost I want to put a little bit of feather in Firewise cap on this note because 12 years ago when we started, you know, boards were 575 to 625, 640 tops. Now they're 750 to 800. And I think that Do you think the artisanal board builder helps with that too? Like both of you guys are kind of pushing the the ceiling a little bit? Hopefully. But I think it's it's the the bigger footprints at retail that sort of drive the, the average surfer, you know, whereas the artisanal boards happen in a much smaller scale. I mean, scale. if you go into Mitch's, the, they've got a lot of boards in there that are priced pretty nice yeah, relative to this conversation. Mitch's. Well, yeah, I know. You know there's the two, whole, but... Yeah, yeah right, fair <laughs> enough. Yeah, I actually lived down the street from us to the other one. Sorry, Mitch. But it, it all comes back to, you know, when you start getting past a certain scale in the way you, you build yeah. surfboards, there's certain economic realities that set and there's certain ways you have to run and manage your business or you're not going to survive. Yeah. And are there some of these big companies that, um, that are making boards overseas that we don't know about? Are there some, are there some surfboard, very successful surfboard brands that are making boards in, and, not letting the consumer know like is the consumer being duped maybe i'm maybe i'm coming out of left field here but i've heard through the grapevine that there's been some big companies that 
We all know the big surfboard brands that are bringing in boards that aren't American-built surfboards. Yeah, they're all. And that's we don't want to name names because we got friends in the yeah, look, space and. I mean, is that wrong? Shouldn't they be labeled like yours is labeled? I agree, and that's why we voluntarily did it because we, you know, there was too much information floating around when we first started as to where the boards were made, and we wanted to be transparent. Yeah, there's this. Um, Dennis Jarvis mentioned this U.S. Board Builders Alliance or something like that. This mm-hmm. this thing where they're asking for transparency. They want to level the playing field, so to speak. Um, and they want stickers on every board that says this board was built in the USA and blah, blah, blah. Any thoughts on that other than, I don't know, what kind of Look, thoughts do you have on something like that? Well, I, I do think the country of origin matters. You know, it, it's the law when it comes to apparel and footwear and things like that. So I don't see why surfboard should be exempted. I just don't think there should be a standardized way of doing it. I think each brand can do it how they like, but it should be prominently displayed under the glass and not something that's covered over by a traction pad. So I'm all, I'm all for that. I think I've said how I feel about the, the import duty thing. I don't think that that is the – and it might sound self-serving, and maybe it is, but I don't think that is what ails our industry. Mark Price, <clears throat> we've said a lot. We've said it all, really. Is there anything that – Without getting into a press release, <laughs> <laughs> this isn't press release time. Anything else that you want to say before we sign off? Um, oh, geez. Did I let you off too easy? No, I think you pushed me pretty hard, and, and I hope I didn't come across you know, too aggro in certain situations. But you know, I think it's hard to judge yourself on a podcast. I would just say um, uh, peace. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Good stuff. Until next time. Thank you, Mark. Thanks, Scott.